everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. WDET's book club is back for a third year where we're going to spend the summer delving into a book and talking with experts and with you about what it means in the context of our world. You can tune into the discussions right here on WDET and online in our Facebook group called the WDET Book Club. This year's pick, of course, is Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And I know a lot of you have already started reading Ellison's novel, which was published by Random House in 1952 and won the National Book Award for Fiction the next year. It is considered one of the most formative works of the 20th century and is notable for Ellison's surreal approach to storytelling and for the book's really frank discussions of race and identity and racial brutality in American society. Ellison's interrogation of power, of systemic racism, and inequality has never felt more urgent or pertinent than it does right now. As many Americans are calling for an end to police brutality and systemic racism, we are reading and discussing Invisible Man's pinpoint descriptions of inequality in the 20th century and bringing them forward to today's demonstrations and protests. Here to talk more about Invisible Man, about Ellison's influence, and about his own work examining identity, race, masculinity, and black liberation in contemporary America is the author of the story collection, How Are You Going to Save Yourself? I want to welcome J.M. Holmes to Detroit Today. It's really great to have you here with us. I'm glad to be here. Um, well, I guess not here physically, but <laughs> right? glad to be here spatially. <laughs> That's right. It's the way we all have to be with each other right now, it seems. Um, so let's yeah, start here. Yeah. Your collection of stories, How Are You Going to Save Yourself, is similar to Invisible Man in that it delves into the idea of identity and the development of identity in young African-American people. How do these stories of coming of age emerge in your work and in Ellison's, from your view? Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is semi-autobiographical. Um, a lot of the stories started kind of uh, in undergrad. I wrote the first draft of, I'd say, probably half the stories in the collection. And um, it was around that time that a mentor, now, now a friend of mine, Amity Gage, gave me Ellison's collection, Flying Home. And um, it kind of dropped me into a history of literature that I didn't know I was a part of. Um, so that was kind of a beautiful thing, even though obviously some of it was anachronistic to my ear because it's, you know, 40s and 50s, most of the stories are published. Sure, but um, yeah, just a lot of the a lot of the themes were just already right there, you know. And so it was a strange feeling to kind of be dropped into this this lineage that you you know I wasn't privy to, and I didn't really grow up in a academic intellectual family. So it uh, it was a really cool feeling. I mean. Yeah. It was, not the right word, but it's early in the morning. I'll find a better word soon. <laughs> no, that's okay. So so there's something about telling stories of coming of age uh, that, for me, are about journey and travel from one space to another, from one time to another. And, of course, the, these are similar themes of, in your work and in uh, Invisible Man. But But talk to me about that time in p- 
people's lives and young people's lives and why that was so attractive for you to be to be writing about in in the context of black identity and black liberation yeah well i i think um as black authors a lot of us are and i don't want actually i won't won't speak for us like a monolith i personally um am interested with exploring and describing you know the multitudes that we contain and i think a lot of times you see whether it's Hollywood or, or news coverage, they, they kind of shrink our identities down to, you know, these, you know, non-flattering bullet points. And I think uh, the work of literature sometimes is to ex- expand the world, uh, you know, show the breadth of the experience. And so I think in doing that, you do have to kind of show the journey from one place to another, because if we kind of start in a, you know, provincial limited sense, you know, like I did, and then you you gain all these experiences, you know, you think about Claude McKay in Russia, you, you know, you think about Ellison being from the South and winding up in Harlem right after the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, and, and that kind of expands identity for us in a way. So I think it's why you see it in a lot of uh, authors kind of first work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you compare Ellison to James Baldwin, who you know it is, a little more defined than Ellison because he was a much more public figure. He wrote a lot more than Ellison. Uh, but you say you gravitate more toward Ellison than toward Baldwin. Tell us, tell us why. Uh, Baldwin uh, is so unbelievably, uh, you know, a little whistle just... He, he just is an intellectual's intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's obviously a beauty to that, but when you're 18, 19, unless you're extremely smart, smarter than I, it's impossible to emulate and pull from that. So, and, well, I don't know. My, stylistically, I guess my writing always shifted more towards uh, the scenic, the, the rhythmic, the uh, visceral in a way. And definitely Baldwin gets visceral, don't get me wrong, but... Uh, Ellison's work, especially in Flying Home, not so much in Invisible Man. Invisible Man, he definitely stylistically made a shift to uh, the surreal, the world of... He exists a lot in the thought world and the thought realm and, and Invisible Man. And in Flying Home, those stories, it's, it's much more scenic, it's immediate, it's right on the page, it, it, you know, it just kind of seeps into you. Uh, so that, that collection made a lot of sense to me. Mm. Mm. Uh, you talk also about Ellison's Invisible Man representing a movement away from the lineage of oppression and asserting an identity rooted in individualism. There are lots of parts in the book where the narrator, the, the nameless narrator, struggles with that idea of an individual defined identity. Uh, he struggles with it with regard to the way he interacts with white people in the book, but he also struggles with it when he interacts with, uh, with African-Americans. Can you talk more about that idea and how you think about that assertion of identity for black people today? Yeah, I think, um, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't live through that time period. So I, I, 
know that for for black Americans, obviously, in the 50s and 60s, was an extremely tumultuous time. But I think there's mirrors of that today. And I think uh, for Ellison, he was trying to move away from this conversation of black and white, and he wanted to approach identity on, on his own terms. And I think, you know, he struggled with that because most of his praise, you know, him and him and Baldwin and him and Richard Wright kind of had a, a, a touch-and-go relationship, for, for lack of a better word. And, and I think he saw this pulling away from the black community and the identities. He didn't, he didn't want to speak for black people as a monolith. He didn't, wasn't necessarily as engaged in the protest as someone like James Baldwin was. And so he, an invisible man, to me anyway, the way I read it, is it he seems to be trying to negotiate and redefine the conversation around what it means to be a black American and, and a black writer. And um, I think you see that with the end of the book. I mean, it's been a while since I read it, but um, he kind of has these assertions about his consciousness being also your consciousness. And I imagine he's, you know, he's not writing at that point for me to a black audience. I think he knows his readers is a white leadership. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think he, he, he kind of bucked against that limiting definition in a way that he wasn't willing to just kind of take it and put it on and be a black protest novel in my opinion, but I'm sure there's scholars who disagree with me, but hmm. yeah. Uh, my guest is J.M. Holmes. He is the author of the story collection, How Are You Going to Save Yourself? His literary prizes include the Burnett Howe Prize for Fiction at Amherst College, the Henfield Prize for Literature, and a Pushcart Prize. We are talking about J.M.'s work, Jeff's work, uh, and we are also talking about how it echoes the work of Ralph Ellison, who is the author of Invisible Man, which is our selection for the WDET Summer Book Club. If you want to call and join the conversation, uh, give us a call and tell us what you think about identity and the way it's handled in Invisible Man. If you are reading along with us this summer, uh, you have uh, certainly noticed in the book that identity is one of the strongest themes that Ellison deals with. He deals with it in a number of very complicated ways, and there are a number of very complicated narratives that emerge from that concept of identity, how it's defined by ourselves and how it's defined by other people for us in many cases. Uh, give us a call. Tell us how your own conception of identity has been impacted by race, for instance, uh, both in terms of the way you think of your identity and in the way people respond to you and your identity. Uh, also, what do you make of uh, Ellison's exploration of identity in Invisible Man? How are you reacting to what you're reading in the novel? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Also, uh, give us a call and just let us know if you are reading this novel, if you're reading it for the first time, what are your impressions of it, if you are rereading the novel with us, uh, what do you think of it? Uh, it's a very long read, I know, 
but uh, but by now I imagine lots of people are pretty deep into it, and we're really curious about how you're you're reacting to it, uh, Jeff. Before we get to listeners and their comments, uh, I, I w- want to give you a chance to talk about. Uh, the moment that we're experiencing here right now in America, uh, this this massive wave of protest against police brutality in the sort of literal uh, objection, but also in in context, uh, the, the the entire history of systemic racism and inequality in in America, uh, work like yours seems to speak really strongly to this moment. Uh, as I said in the open, it always kinds of kind of seems to reflect or capture or maybe forecast uh, the kind of things that that we're going to experience. But I want I wonder what you make of what we're seeing uh, and the influence, perhaps, of literature and art on the protest movement uh, for for Black liberation. Oh wow, that's a it's a big question, right? Uh, yeah, it's a huge question. Um, but, you know, obviously I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I think it's important to talk about it and, and be in dialogue with other creatives and other people, um, part of the media such as yourself. Um, I think in general, a lot of the feelings, you know, they, they, they echo back, you know, generations. But for me, I guess my first conceptual feeling of it was my dad kind of explaining who Rodney King was to me because I was two when Rodney King happened. Um, but my, my father, obviously, uh, he had a very, you know, strong reaction as a lot of black Americans and white Americans had had about Rodney King. and, And, you know, that was part of his, his talk and his lecture to me about, you know, the police aren't always your friends. Um, and he, you know, he was, he was a professional athlete and so he was kind of moderate in a way, I guess, is like, you know, O. J. Simpson famously said, I'm I'm not black, I'm O. J. And I think my dad had a little bit of that, mm-hmm. but also knew the reality because, you know, later in his life he was uh in and out of the uh the prison system. So he he had a very complex worldview when it came to that stuff. But yeah, for me you know, my first real experience with it was, well, aside from my own running with police, but in terms of a, a societal um, experience with it, obviously, was Trayvon Martin and, and, um, and, then, and then Michael Brown and, and the rise of, of BLM then. And a lot of people, white people especially, didn't really take notice of it then in 2014, 2015. And I think this time around it's been a much different reaction and it's for, for me anyway, it seems like it could be a much more positive reaction, but I'm, I'm, I'm weary to say that just yet because I I know as things tend to go in this country, um, the social justice win changes a lot. I would Mm -hmm. say, I'd say people get a fervor for something, you know, um, and then it's, and then it's gone sadly. And I think for, for creatives, it's never gone for us, and it, and it, and you know that's the that's the odd thing is when you're working on whether it's a collection or a novel or you know uh, uh, I'm sure for visual artists you know whatever medium you're working in it it's a lot of time committed to something and it spans the the blowing and changing winds of social justice. So yeah. it's 
I was working on that collection for six years, you know, and, and um, it came out pretty much when the Me Too movement was at its height and at its peak. And, and I think, um, obviously, the book doesn't speak to that in, in, in a real way and in, a, in an important way. And, and I think for that reason, it, it wasn't really a part of the conversation, which, which I think the social justice initiative is always more important than in many ways, to me anyway, than the art itself. Mm. And so I was okay with that. And it's odd now that, you know, I went, I went from having, you know, no phone calls for like four months to like my phone doesn't stop ringing. Now. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, and I'm, I'm glad that this conversation is, is, is starting to be on the consciousness and the forefront of a lot of Americans' minds. Um, but I think for creatives, we kind of just, we, we don't get too caught up in necessarily the specific moment because for us it's something that we live with and explore and uh you know work with or work against for a lot of our careers and, and yeah. that's just like what you need to do to do the work i i, I feel often like literature and art uh, is a reminder of the constancy of these issues that that yeah that that they are always with us as as black americans especially the, the things that we experience, the the way that it shapes our lives, it it doesn't go away. The way protest movements ebb and 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 flow. I mean, if you look at your stories and the the things that they reflect about the reality of being black in America, they're they're not fundamentally different from what Ralph Ellison was writing about almost seventy years ago. They're not fundamentally different from what James Baldwin was writing about uh, a little later in the 50s and 60s. This, this is a, a, a constant thread throughout American history and American lives. And, uh, it, you know, every once in a while I feel like the culture turns back to that subject or flares up around that subject. Um, but, but the art is, is always sort of influenced by it and, and reflective of it. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with you, and and I would say that um, this is a another moment and another stretch of time where Black American writers, our work is being reexamined and and kind of taken seriously again. But I would say that for you know a general white audience, I think they they don't like to go here very often, and so when we have their attention we want to say all that we can in, 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 in that moment. And, uh, and I wish it wasn't that way, but I just, that's, that's the way I feel anyway, as, as a writer in my short career so far, I feel, um, like their, their racial attention span is short. And so when we have these large cultural moments, you know, flare up. So when we have these, um, kind of, you know, brutal news focus, um, we have to use our time wisely. Uh, and again, I wish it wasn't that way, but that's, that's the conversation for us, as you mentioned, you know, it never stops. But when we have the wider attention of the, of, of the general public, I think we feel, at least I feel an anxiety to get, get it all in and move the needle. Um, and, yeah, I just, I just, I hope we can do it this time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. 
And when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation with J.M. Holmes, author of the story collection, How Are You Going to Save Yourself? And we want to hear from you, Adrian in Detroit, Vincent Royal Oak. We'll get to you. If you want to join them, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work them into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city, your town, your voice on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is J.M. Holmes, author of the story collection, How Are You Going to Save Yourself? We are talking with him as part of our discussions in the WDET Book Club. This summer, we are all together as a community reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, the 1952 novel about identity and race and racial brutality uh, in America at that time. We're talking about how the themes from that book forecast into today's conversation about police brutality and systemic racism that we see unfolding in the massive protests all around the country. Uh, We're also talking about the way in which black literature, black art, tells the story of protest movements like these, but also the consistent Uh, reality of uh, dealing with these issues as a black American. Uh, As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. If you want to join the conversation, call and tell us what you're reacting to as you read Invisible Man with us this summer. Uh, Also call and tell us what you think about the themes, the strong themes of identity that are confronted in the book. You can also go to WDET's Facebook page and to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, let's start today with uh, Adrian in Detroit. Adrian, welcome good morning, to the show. Stephen. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I the identity theme runs throughout the book, but I think one of the most important parts, without giving away the book, is after his accident. I'm like, did he have a lobectomy done? And <laughs> and if he did, if they remove the part that controls your impulses hmm. and your identity, because he kept thinking, what's my name? But one more important thing is they were thinking about sterilization at that time. And hmm. I'm like, did, did Ellison know something about sterilization? Because the reality was, remember all the mental ill people, mental ill females that they sterilize. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I missed that part before. Again, you have to read the book more than once to appreciate it, I guess. But I definitely see the identity thing that runs throughout the book. Because after his accident, he forgot exactly who he was. He's a different person. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Adrian, I really appreciate the call and that insight. Uh, Jeff Holmes, I wonder if you can react to what uh, Adrian is talking about here in Invisible Man. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess if I could maybe zoom out to the wider context of, you know, kind of how black Americans, how sometimes we um, experience the healthcare system and, you know, the her comments about, the forced sterilization at times of 
mentally ill women and and you know i think about the the tuskegee syphilis experiment mm-hmm. and then you know i think about elijah mcclain with the, the ketamine and then you know in minneapolis it's been documented that uh you know people who have been taken into police custody have been giving been given ketamine against their will um and to a host of health problems uh i know this is kind of a spiral but it <laughs> Huh. It, um, no, that's a really it, it, interesting strain to, to, to sort of tie all those things together. Um, I mean, that's that the, you're absolutely right that they all reflect this really difficult relationship that African Americans have with the healthcare system in this country. In the sense that we need it more than many other groups of Americans because of the history of. Uh, of exclusion and and lack of access to healthcare, but we also have been betrayed by the yeah. healthcare system more than other more than other groups. Uh, Adrian, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Vince at Royal Oak. Vince, hi. go ahead. Hi, hi, how you doing? Hey, uh, yeah, that comment from Adrian was really really interesting. I thought about the lobotomy too. Uh, I, this is my first time reading Invisible Man, uh, and, and it's, it's a pretty amazing book. When I was uh, in grad school, I was lucky enough to take a class uh, with Margot Jefferson, and she introduced me to a book that I thought about as I started reading Invisible Man, which is James Weldon Johnson's autobiography of an ex-colored man which uh, you know, deals with questions of identity as, uh, uh, too, uh, and in particular in, in that case, Passing, which is the ultimate form of assimilation, mm-hmm. of you know, kind of taking on uh, dominant culture. I'm just kind of wondering if, if if you ever have read that book, and what you might think about the parallels there. Hmm. Uh, great question, Vince. Uh, Jeff, I'll 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 let you respond. Uh, yes, I, I do. I do feel like I actually read that book in college, but now I'm I'm drawing a blank and actually. Uh, I think it's it's Nella Larson's book that comes to mind. She she also wrote a book on passing, and I cannot remember the title of it. Um, but yeah, I mean that's obviously another uh, another theme that as African American authors we we revisit a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's you know shadism and the idea of passing is an extremely um, entrenched thing in our community and our lives and. Um, it, it's it's obviously um, an important topic for me, you know, being uh, being a light skinned black man and having certain privileges that come with that, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know, to constantly try to examine that privilege as it relates to my family and as it relates to you know my friends and my community and and, and my work too, to a certain degree. Um, so I, I definitely appreciate that comment, and I would say that you know I think. In Ellison's work, I'm reminded of his uh, last story in the collection of Flying Home, you know, the one that's titled Flying Home. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's not necessarily dealing with passing, but it's it's dealing with this idea of escaping your community and, in that sense, the the black community and and kind of chasing the praise of his white officers. You know, he's in the... um, trained to be in the Air Force. And uh, that idea of being able to kind of es- escape 
the black community and, and almost ascend into the white community, which is a, a very, you know, uh, easy kind of correlation to the idea of passing. Sure. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I've read commentary on Ellison as a man and, uh, once he got to New York and kind of escaped his, his Southern roots and his, his, you know, his childhood and in, in, in poverty and, he kind of did try to do that in a lot of ways. And I think um, some people within the black community and the black community of intellectuals kind of resented him for that because he, you know, kind of historically did not keep a lot of black people around him. He did not keep a lot of, you know, black friends and, and um, black family around him. He, he kind of did ascend into this, this dominant white culture and he became kind of a literary darling of, uh, white literary culture and I think there was a lot of resentment because Baldwin obviously played the exact opposite role he was obviously you know endeared to a lot of white critics and editors and such as well but he was very much about the protest and about the movement and about the identity of being a black man whereas Ellison struggled so hard I feel like to escape it hmm. in some ways um yeah. You know, in in your your book, one of the main characters, Gio, has an Italian mother and a black father. Um, and there's a particularly memorable scene in the book where Gio is confronted uh, with a racist member of his family on his on his mom's side. And, and that kind of echoes a lot of the things that uh, I think we see people dealing with right right now. But in in. Uh, a larger sense, I think uh, one of the themes you're de- dealing with there is that sense of straddled identity that so many African Americans have to contend with as well. That that you are a member of uh, one group, uh, but you are also uh, either assigned membership in another group or inheriting membership in another group that may not quite square with uh with your your identity as as an african-american yeah yeah i think um a lot of a lot of uh african-american authors i feel like a lot of their books deal with the assigned identity versus um the asserted self-identity mm-hmm. and um yeah definitely that, that story uh out of my collection and, you know, a few others in the collection definitely talk about that, that straddling, that um, resisting the external definitions that are, are placed upon us as black Americans. Um, because so often they're not generous. They're not bestowed upon us lovingly, if you will. They're not an attempt to understand or, or to, um, and compliment us. A lot of times they're bestowed upon us to categorize us so that we make sense to um, an American public that doesn't deal well with ambiguity. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, um, you know, you obviously have Loving Day in, what was it, 1970? Uh, I, I, well, Loving, I didn't know Loving, yeah, Day. Loving versus Virginia, that's... Uh... Yeah. Um, the, yeah, the Supreme Court yeah, case I that uh, I can't remember what year that is either, but it is in the it is in uh, late sixties or early seventies. Um, yeah, well, maybe late sixties. Um, but yeah, you always have this idea of, of you know the the color line in this country, and it's and it's shifted over time. And obviously, 
Um, and it's and it's kind of shifted completely off of Black Americans for a time. You know, you think about after nine eleven, it shifted to, for you know, the first time ever in America's history, we were not public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you think about the way that uh, you know, shadism and colorism affects all that in the identities that are bestowed upon us. We, we, you know, especially as creative individuals, you, you really spend a lot of time thinking about who you are as a person and, and how you can assert that to contend with, you know, the, the public perception of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before I have to let you go, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all authors. It's my favorite question for authors, which is, what's next? What are you working on? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I know it's the, it's author's least favorite question, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like I've, I've been talking about the novel I've been working on for little Brown. Um, so yeah, I owe them I owe them a novel, but I feel like the more I the more I talk about it, the uh <laughs> the less the likely it is to reality. get done. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, you know, I'm very uh superstitious when it comes to that. I remember, you know, uh when I when I got the the book deal for the collection, I just didn't say like a word about it until it was on the shelf because I just still didn't feel like it was going to happen. <laughs> um but the novel is very different. It's a dystopian novel. Um about mixed race brothers who come out looking different and therefore they fall on different sides of the color line. And there's, you know, um, white supremacist groups, there's counterintelligence, there's a bunch of private security, there's a water crisis. Um, and it all takes place in Milwaukee. So. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds fantastic. I can't wait. I can't wait to see well, that. I hope it show. gets done. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think all writers can relate to that, uh, yeah. to that conundrum. Okay, J.M. Holmes, it was really, really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we are going to have a conversation with Democratic candidate for Wayne County Prosecutor Victoria Burton-Harris. She is challenging Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy in the August primary. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Today.